I would send 100 emails a day with my resume. Finally, I get lucky. Payne Weber at the time, big financial company. I don't know if you're familiar with it. They were a big company. They asked me, the HR goes, you know what? I would like to interview you. They're about to make an offer. And I tell them, listen, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about finance, equity, nothing. But I guarantee you guys that I will outwork everyone and I will be on my feet in this field. Just take a chance with me. And they did. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's it's five percent of the ingredient it pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me taught me humility nothing can hit humble you more than wrestling i think it's the learning to adapt right you learn you learn how to adapt you learn how to solve problems you know if i look back my time i spent wrestling if it gave me one thing more than anything else it's mental toughness Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. As always, we're presented by Spartan Combat. Spartan Combat is hosting a tournament Sunday, July 24th called the Hofstra Summer Heat. No surprise, it's at Hofstra University in New York. They have two divisions. One has 7th through 12th graders. The other is the Open Division. Register now at SpartanCombat.com. Again, it's Sunday, July 24th, the Hofstra Summer Heat Wrestling Tournament, presented by Spartan Combat. Our guest today is Mo Tavakolian, born in Iran. He wrestled at Hofstra. He's now the chief compliance officer at a hedge fund on Wall Street. Mo was instrumental in being a diplomat to help bring together Iran and the U.S. at the 2017 World Cup. He also runs a nonprofit called Humanities.org. And his whole goal is to bring people together through sports. I can't wait for you to get to this interview. Hope you enjoy it. Fan of the week goes to a recent Apple podcast review. Let's pull it up right now. This one is from The Bartender, 7465. Five-star review. This is a great podcast. I love hearing various stories of resiliency, training, and athletes accomplishing their goals. As do we, my friend. Thank you to The Bartender, 7465. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for Mo Tavakolian. Mo Tavakolian, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So excited to get into our conversation. We first came first came in touch uh, through the randomness of connections. You know, I'm working on the story of of some Iranian wrestlers now, and you're uh, you were born in Iran. And so, for folks who don't know your journey, you're doing some incredible stuff in the business world, but also in the nonprofit world. And we're going to get into all that. And, and maybe it's not a nonprofit, but I see it as that kind of philanthropic work. But let's just start at the beginning. How old were you uh, when the revolution happened? And So I was, I'm born in 1976. The revolution started occurring in 79. 
So I, uh, I was a child. I, I vaguely remember demonstrations in the streets. Um, and then from there, boom, we got hit with that uh, eight-year war, the Iran and Iraq war, which I believe started in 1981. Uh, and that lasted, uh, I was in Iran through that whole experience. It was actually uh, traumatic, you know, seeing that uh, the war going on in Ukraine, it brings back a lot of memories for me. Um, you know, having those sirens go off in the middle of the night as a first grader, second grader during those times, we would have to run to the basement with my, my mom and dad. Um, it's, a, it, it's a similar story if you speak to anyone around my age who's from that region. Uh, from Iran, that they experienced the same thing, you know, with the sirens at night, the lights going out, and then running to the basement. Um, so I, I still remember my mom sheltering us. We had food and water in the basement, hoping that the bombs don't get dropped close to uh, uh, where we lived. And did you grow um, up on the western border or near Tehran? I, I grew up in Tehran, and I believe um, the Iraqi fighter planes were always trying to aim at the leadership, and they, always, they lived uh, the north of Tehran. That's where we lived. So we would always see them. Um, so we lived through that for years. Um, and then uh, up to fourth grade, I was there, um, middle of fourth grade. And I remember they were, they were recruiting uh, from elementary and middle school and on. No. For the war. Yeah, so what was going on is, in my understanding, there was, a, there was a sanction or there was a hold on arms. So Iran was running out of arms. You know, the, that's leading to the whole arms deal uh, that was going on. So they were running out of ammunition and all that stuff. So they were looking for uh, volunteers to walk on the landmines. And so a lot of uh, grandparents, older generation went in, uh, volunteered for the war. Uh, I remember in fifth grade, there were people going in, volunteering. Um, to, it was insane, yeah, just unreal um, to defend the country. And it's crazy because at that time, the country wasn't even like united in itself because after the revolution, there was you know, there was the Kurdish rebellion. There was all kinds of different infractions going on within the country. And then the, the invasion kind of brought everyone together in a sense. So I think, yeah, I mean, if you speak to people that are anti-Iran government, that war helped everyone unite. Um, mm -hmm. It was right when the revolution happened. There were different uh, student organizations, the leftist movements, the rightist movements. So they were all uh, trying to get the, the Shah out. Um, at the time, they were thinking that if the Shah leaves um, the country, would um, they would get access to all of its resources and all that. And that's why um, they, everyone teamed up after that. And uh, the rest is history. Wow. And so you're, you grow up on, under this kind of umbrella of fear, so to speak, and just uncertainty. Did you have any experience to wrestling in Iran or that was in New York? Absolutely not. So I was, I'm glad I, I, we left because I was probably going to, be raised to be a little rich boy there because my parents were very well off. Um, so wrestling wasn't. Wrestling was uh, catered towards the working class. I mean, the, the poor, I, mean, I don't want to say poor, but it was towards the working class. I think that's a better term to use. And I was being raised on the upper side. So wrestling, I mean, we, I did wrestle with my cousins at home. You know, it's in our blood. It's part of our culture. If you study Iran's literature, poetry, there's always references to wrestling, but it wasn't a sport. My uncles wrestled in Iran at club, uh, the clubs, but wrestling was never something I even considered until I came to America. Wow. And so you were, you were very, you said your family was affluent and very wealthy in, in Iran. And so you get to New York. What's the, what's the status like for immigrants coming to New York during that time? Did you start from so, scratch or? So we, 
we were unfortunate enough to have some family problems. So we came here to New York and we just settled right into Long Island uh, because my uncle who uh, left Iran right at before the revolution. So he came here. So we came uh, hoping he would rely with us on because of family issues. To answer your questions, we started from scratch. I mean, we had nothing. So we went, I went from having a driver that would drive me to school, a chef, you know, having my German shepherds, a lot of the Western things that uh, we had in Iran, having a VCR and a Mercedes, that's aspects uh, was, was considered Western after revolution at the time. So, and then we came here and then we had to start from the bottom, bottom. I mean, when we moved to America, once again, due to misunderstanding with my family and my uncle here, we ended up living in my grandmother's basement that was, that was semi-finished. So, you know, we going from that lifestyle to here, my parents not speaking English, I was nine years old. My brother was five years old. So we, we had to start from scratch. And we lived in a small colonial home, my grandmother's house. It was about 13 of us. It was me, my aunts, my cousins. And it was a struggle. I mean, I, we were lucky enough to live in a town that was very affluent, uh, Great Neck, Long Island. It's one of the richest towns. But believe it or not, in that town, we were below poverty level uh, mm-hmm. growing up in those, that time. Can you imagine just getting dropped off in a country where you don't speak the language and having to figure it out on your own while trying to earn money? It's insane. I think that's what makes it a great story. And that's why I think it's the American dream, right? You come here, if you work hard, I believe you could become anything you want. That's what the greatest thing about America is. Um, We are all given the opportunity, but at the same time, we all have the struggle, right? So that's why I could have, I got into wrestling. I think that was one of my biggest things. And I owe it to my wrestling um, uh, that helped me not give up and, and just face the struggles. And I've been working since I was nine years old. I mean, once I got here at nine, I was delivering penny savers at the time just to help my parents with their utility bills. Mm-hmm. From there, I was working at a bagel store, a bakery. And I'll never forget the owner. I was in high school and the owner would make me uh, clean the tiles with a toothbrush. I've waited tables. I was a busboy. I've, I've bagged groceries. I've done it all. And just to make ends meet. And I believe that has taught me a lot of value. Uh, nothing mm-hmm. was, has ever been handed to me. And I figured that this is, this is my life. This is what I have to do. So I better do it and not complain. And what did your parents do in Iran versus when they came to the States? So my, my mom's side are very famous jewelers. And I mean, they have been, they were part of a, they were a dynasty, I would say, uh, my mom's brothers and my mom's family. My dad was working with my uncle when he married my mom. Um, so that's where the conflict started when they moved here because of misunderstandings. So my mom was a teacher in Iran. She was a science and math teacher in, uh, for uh, middle school. And then my dad worked with my uncle's family business dynasty in the jewelry uh, diamond business. And then when we came here, when that didn't work out, I mean, they didn't speak English. So they tried everything and then they ended up catering, uh, doing caterings just to make ends meet and that's mm. what my parents did um during the day and then at night my mom would study so she would go to college study and then during the day my mom and dad would do caterings here and there at various ceremonies and they were worried about me and my brother what are we going to do since we're working guess what let's put them into sports and the only sport that was close to our culture was wrestling believe it or not i didn't want to get into wrestling i wanted to play basketball but being a little chubby chubby short kid 
I got cut from the basketball team uh, in seventh grade. And that's when I bought, uh, my grandmother bought my first pair of wrestling shoes, which were the John Smith Brutes, the, the blue and the red. Remember the first one? Yes. Those are the ones she bought for me. Those were my first pair of wrestling shoes. Man, I, that's a, uh, to have a pair of those brand new now would be so awesome. Uh, you, once in a while, you stumble across a picture online. And so when you're going through wrestling on Long Island, is Tom Ryan and his brother around in this era? Um, so I got into wrestling in seventh grade. Um, my high school and middle school were not known for wrestling, even though Long Island is a strong hold for wrestling. Um, you, we've had stars from Long Island, such as McCoy and Jansen, and there's a number of people that came out of there. But I was not fortunate enough. I, I went to a high school um, on the North Shore, Great Neck High School, which, um, and I wrestled there and uh, throughout middle school, high school, and once again, it kept me out of trouble, right? I mean, my parents wanted me to be uh, part of something that I would not get in trouble, get involved with gangs, drugs, or anything like that. So wrestling helped me a lot with that. And I wrestled. I was never an elite uh, wrestler. I just had heart. Uh, I was just telling the other day, one of my friends, I have never missed weigh-ins in my life. And I could never Love say that. I'm a, yeah, I, I'm a pure talent. I would win matches. I would lose matches. Um, Never made it to states, and I never claimed to be. But I loved the sport. I loved what it stood for. Um, especially coming from Iran, wrestling is it's a way of life. You know, it's like the uh, it's like a chivalry. Um, you know, you have a social aspect. So I always liked that, I and mean, I always saw old wrestlers doing it. So while I was in high school, um, I was trying to get better. So in tenth grade, I heard about uh, Iowa style wrestling camp, and it was. But the problem was, I think it was couple hundred bucks and I couldn't ask my parents they weren't rich I reached out to a guy named Tom Ryan who Let's was running go. these these uh camps and I said hey uh, how much are these camps and he gave me the price and I said can I pay you installments or and I'll never forget and he said don't worry about it I'll come and pick you up on Monday so for the 10-day camp that I attended for free he would pick me up every day and drop me. and then it was at that point that my relationship with Tom Ryan started. Got it. And so then, he, he had already gone through his time at Hofstra and transferred to Iowa at this time? This is way before this. This is actually what he was, I think he had just finished college. He, uh, okay. he, had, he had lost to Pat Smith. And uh, he was, I think, training. I don't know where he was training for the, uh, the Olympic run. And okay. so that's how I, I, I remember Tom Ryan. And I, and I developed that relationship with them. So I would go to his summer camps from, uh, I think it was 10th grade, 11th grade. And then I started uh, in 11th grade, I was able to save 500 bucks and I borrowed a thousand from my parents and I went to Jay Robinson's uh, 28 day intensive Whoa. camp. Wow. Yep. What do you remember from that, that camp? Um, it, I went with the four kids from my high school and they all quit. I was the only one that was left. They all quit within the first week. They went home. I couldn't go home. My mom would beat my ass if I went back home. Right. So yeah. um, I, I got my bucket every single day. And I always talk about, uh, that's where I met the Papalizios that were in my group. What? Dude, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, where, so, set, so, set, whole, so to his, set the stage a little bit, was this in Minnesota or was this on the East Coast when you did this camp? In Minnesota. In Minnesota, I got up. First time away from my parents, I went to this wrestling camp. I had no idea what to expect. Once again, I came from a weak wrestling culture in my high school. You know, it wasn't one of those, you know, we had tough kids on the team, but nothing compared to these guys in the Midwest. And I remember I was in group three 
Anthony Papalizio was in my group. Uh, the other Papalizio was in the heavier group. Um, so I used to hang out with them. They were the New York guys, right? So we all used to hang out. The New York guys had a little group going on. They would play cards. And um, I just remember I used to have a great time with them. And it was the first time I really was hanging out and learning and wrestling and pretty much being able to take people down. Um, and, it, and it's funny because I did that two years in a row, two summers in a row. And that became my thing to go there um, to train with them. Um, once again, I knew I didn't have the talent like everybody else. I had to work hard and I accepted that fact a long time ago. So I was at that camp. It's great. I just recently saw, um, Jay Robinson and I was telling him the stories I had. And I do see all those counselors who used to wrestle for Minnesota when I was in high school. And I see him now in the wrestling world. Yeah. Sam Barber, I believe he's, he's at Air Force and Navy. I see him all the time. And, uh, coach Russell. He's on the, yeah. I see him and he was, he was my camp counselor at Jay was, Robinson. Was Dave Dean still in the mix or was he gone at that point? Dave Dean, I don't remember. Okay. I remember Marty. There was a. Marty Morgan. Marty, yeah. Marty Morgan was my camp counselor. Um, so there's a bunch of them there. So that was good. That really kind of taught me about life and not giving up. Once again, coming from um, a high school program that wasn't as like that. So that was great. That was one of the best times in our learning not to give up, not to just get pinned. It's not that danger. Was the first two days eye-opening to you, the workload? Holy cow. The first day we got there, I, I'll never forget. Uh, we had to run and do all these tests, right, to see what groups you fall into. So I didn't know. So I remember I, I ran, 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 and I got into, like, running group six. And then the next morning, they had us waking up at, like, 5.30, and it was brutal. And I hate running and it was just tough, but those buddy carries in the morning. But I, and then the marathon, the best was <laughs> they used to have this uh, thing. You could run a 10 mile marathon, 12 or 15, but they recommended you run the 15. <laughs> wow. And that was good. And then the red flag days on, on the weekends. So they would have these days on Saturdays. You would have, it would be like red flag, brutal days. And then you would get the rest of the afternoon off. So those days, they would just crush us. Man, it's like you said. That was the camp to go to back then. And, you know, so many guys who I've had on the show will mention like the first time they went to the J-Rob camp. And, you know, before J-Rob left Iowa in the 80s, it was the Iowa intensive camp was the same thing. And, um, yeah, there's just, uh, man, I, I feel bad that our generation doesn't have, like mine doesn't have that. I graduated high school in 07. There were some guys in our team that were still going to it, but it had lost a little bit of its, I don't know why, maybe it's lust, but, man, it that thing was just, uh, I like you said, it's kind of a good way to go through like a boot camp or a basic training, get yourself ready for life. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I loved it. It, it, it helped me a lot. I mean, when I came back from that camp, I was on top of the world in shape. I mean, I saw my four pack, I'm not even saying six pack. And then the problem was there was nothing else going on in my school district. So I kind of didn't do anything after that. I didn't know anything about nutrition you know my parents are immigrants i really didn't have any mentorship or leadership and it was just tom ryan and i would just see and talk to tom ryan during the summers what kind so of guy that, was he like back then he was so funny i love tom ryan he's such a good grounded guy i mean i have so much respect for him just because back then he didn't really have to all he had to do was say hey i'll give you 20 bucks off of your camp and then he would come and pick me up and drop me off and I, I'm, I'm forever i mean in doubt and he I, I always tell him, like, I feel like that was it. That's what you set the path 
path for me. Um, you were probably one of the original people that kind of told me, hey, it's okay to help others and lend a hand. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So how what happens next for you after high school? So after high school, chasing that dream of going to states, didn't make it, uh, didn't even place in our uh, state qualifiers. Devastated, didn't understand. But the thing was, now during the uh, after high school, I kept on begging my parents, please take me to Iran. I want to learn the technique and stuff. They couldn't financially send me. I couldn't go there. So it never worked out. I decided uh, to go to Hofstra locally. Um, so and my parents wanted me to stay home. I went to go to a place like Michigan and experience that, uh, the American college and uh, university life. And my parents were like, nope, you're staying home till you get married. And, um, and then from there, I went to Hofstra as a walk-on. And at the time, this was 1994, 95. And we go to Hofstra, we're probably ranked like bottom 40th or 50th uh, in the NCAAs. Um, there was a coach there. Um, and then during that time there, we had a lot of guys from Ohio State champs and I got my behind handed to me. I mean, I, I was a walk-on, right? So, and they just beat the crap out of me. And, and I, would, I just remember going to the showers. I just, I'm like, why am I doing this? I suck. But I didn't give up. I would just get up the next day and come. And then a little incident happened at Hofstra during one of the practices. The coach and one of the athletes got, in, got into a conflict that led to somebody being hurt. And then they started looking for a new coach. And at the time, Tom Ryan was training, I believe, um, or he may not have made the Olympic team or something. And then next, I know Tom, I get a call from Tom Ryan after my first year ended. So during my first year, I didn't do much. Um, they took me to the Penn State Open. Um, and uh, me oh for the first time. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know who I got first? <laughs> you know who I got first round? What's his name um, from, uh, uh, was it from Penn State, the national champ, and his cousin, I keep on, his name always forgets me. He's on Wall Street now, I see him once in a while. He, uh, his cousin is the assistant coach at Rutgers. Um, oh, Pretzloff, Glenn Pretzloff. Yes, so I get Glenn Pretzloff, I believe the first one. <laughs> me, as your walk-on, Foxer Division one. So that was very interesting. I don't know how fast he teched me, so that was it. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, man, this is no joke. Yeah. So that was my first experience. I, I wrestled a few matches my freshman year. And then that situation happens. The next thing I know. What? Like, so the oh, coach God, got into a fight with the wrestler and, like, the wrestler got hurt? So, so what happened was we were in these round robins. It was the coach, myself, and two other. And there was uh, – I was wrestling at 150, 158 at that time. That was my weight. And then – we were in a group with 167 and the coach was there and we had this one kid that just, you know, he's just one of those wrestlers, dirty wrestlers and kept on headbutting the coach and pulling his finger, bending his finger. And the coach kept on warning him, warning him, warning him, stop it, cut it out. And, then I, and I was in that group. So I was involved with the situation. Um, so the coach was on top, broke the athlete down off his bases. The athlete started headbutting the coach in the face while the coach was trying to get the arm bar bring the arm out behind his back with his weight on him the coach was heavier so the athlete and the coach told him to stop it the athlete continued the coach kind of hit him in the back of the head and told him to stop it athlete continued the coach's uh, lips started bleeding and then the next thing I know the coach picks the kid up and just right in his face and nose 
Next thing I know, the assistant coach, who happened to be the coach's brother, stops practice, closes the door, brings everyone over and goes, no, nothing happened. It was an accident. But I feel like it was, they were trying to tone it down. But then the problem was the two athletic trainers were there too. Got it. Got it. So the coach uh, left, and now they were looking for a whole new coaching staff. And then your uh, your kind of quasi mentor gives you a call. How excited were you when you heard found out that Tom Ryan was going to be the coach? So he calls me and he goes, "Hey, I just took the coaching job at Hopshaw. Don't transfer. I'm coming in." And then I'm like, "Oh shoot, yeah." And I was looking. I was trying to see where I could go. I mean, there was there weren't that many options, right? Um, that any school that I could commute from Long Island, uh, Stony Brook, St. John's. Um, Columbia, it's Ivy League school. I don't, I didn't, my grades weren't that good my first year because I was, I had so much freedom. I came from my parents who were dictators. So my grades weren't that good. I couldn't get into Columbia. NYU, I couldn't either at this point. I couldn't afford these schools. So Tom Ryan came in. We had our first meeting and I was super excited. We had Tom Ryan coming back to Long Island. And then he brings in Coach Edmonds, I believe. Um, he is a, a New York State champ from Freeport, a national champ from Tennessee State, I believe. Mm. So big guy, and he used to be uh, a security guard um, in Nassau County Jail. <laughs> wow. So it worked out. Yeah, so we had him, Coach, and also um, Neil um, from uh, ASICS. Coach Neil, he went to Slippery Rock. Um, so he was there too. So we had these three coaches. And now a lot of kids had transferred out, all those Ohio States. Most of them had transferred out. So Tom Ryan had uh, half a team, and we just got – our behinds kicked that first year. I'll never forget. Uh, it was rough. It was really rough. We were losing matches on time. would just make us run stairs. Uh, we went to, uh, I believe, Lockett. Where's Mike? Mike Rogers went to Lockett, Lockett in? I'm not sure on that one. Yeah, I think I think it was. Well, not, well anyway, anyway, so we wrestled. Uh, I wrestled Mike Rogers. That's how I know. And we were just, everyone was getting their butt kicked for every team we wrestled. And I remember Tom I was telling me, Hey, just don't get tech. So Mike Rogers is up like 12, nothing. And I'm holding his fingers. And he could, and then I'd get off the mat. I was so excited. I'm like, Tom, I didn't get, I didn't get tech. It's like, now nah, you got to run. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> 13, nothing. I was going to ask you what the workload was. Cause you know, Tom was coming from Gable in the Iowa system. And like, it must've been quite a change in the daily practice regiment. It was, it was, I mean, we used to, there was a lot more live wrestling and, and the best part was he would be there. I'll never forget. He would wear the sweat. I still dress like him. Sweatpants, the old school sweatpants, the old, uh, the old school sweat top. He would tuck it in, socks over pants with his little mouth guard. And then we all, <laughs> we all try to look like him. So we, we used to always wrestle like that. Um, so he had that mentality, the 5.30 morning runs. Um, and I was still a walk-on. Uh, so I was a uh, walk-on. I, uh, I, we had a wrestle off with Mazurko, who was my teammate, um, Anthony Mazurko. Um, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'll never forget. We had a home. We had in this big gym, and we had a wrestle off. I've never seen that. It was, we had bands, so Tom Ryan kind of was trying to get wrestling hyped. I lost the spot at uh, 158. I wrestled at 150 to the people that I lost to in Long Island uh, during my high school years, and I beat them, and I made the 150 pound. Uh, I was a starter for Tom Ryan at 150. Wow. At, uh, at Hofstra. Um, Is that a pretty much, hard cut? No. Well, I would walk around like 175. It was horrible. I mean, I didn't know how to cut back then. Ooh. So, yeah. So, I mean, if I knew what I know now back then, I think it would have helped a lot. 
So, and that's what I did. I did that. And then at the NCA qualifiers, uh, my second year with Tom Ryan, uh, I blew my knee out during a match. I ripped my meniscus. I was wrestling the returning NCA qualifier from Drexel. And he, Tom always said, I, I didn't forfeit that match. I continued wrestling it. And I was really good on my feet. I always tell Tom Ryan, I'm like, before Jordan Burroughs, I had the double. He goes, yeah, that's all you had, one double. And then, and then he would gas after that. <laughs> so I, I remember I was winning 2 nothing at uh, with the NCAA qual because I was really I'm telling you I was a champ the first period the first one minute and after that I blew my knee out and Tom's like this is it you can't it's like finish the match I just went to show him that I had heart and that was wow. it after that I had to get my um and during that last semester I'll never forget Tom because I still was a walk-on no scholarship we were wrestling Seton Hall at the time our 177 pounder who had Tom brought him back from uh, quitting a year before he doesn't show up for wins. So now we're like, oh my God. And we have uh, our heavyweight, Joe Yanis, all these guys are on this team still. And then Tom's looking around and he goes, I don't want to forfeit. It's going to be a close match. And we're not that good. We don't want, we got to win one right at homecoming. He looks at me, he's like, Mo, you don't have to do this. Would you wrestle 177? And I'm 150, right? So I said, no problem. And he goes, all you got to do is just don't get majored by a point. And I ended up losing to the guy by two or three points. And we ended up winning as a team. So I think that might have been one of our big wins during that year with Tom. Damn. And then he calls me and he goes, you have heart. He goes, I'm going to give you, uh, see if I could get some money to help you out with your education. And the next thing I blow my knee out. So mm. now I blow my knee out. I go to Tom. Tom's saying, hey, I don't know what's going to happen with your knee. And the promise, I know I promised you. And that's the time he was recruiting. So that year he brought in like Roman Plazar and Eric Schmizing. So all these guys were he's bringing in, um, and that's that was a team that eventually ended up being top and turning things around for Hofstra. So at the time, I decided to transfer out. Um, I said, you know, Tom, I I can't afford school anymore. My grades are not on par, and I looked around and I saw that there's a school in Manhattan, Hunter College, Division Three. I said, this will get me out of my parents' house. I'm commuting and. I'll be able to wrestle still. And that's what I did. I had my knee surgery, got rehab. But during the summers, um, I would be at Hofstra with Tom Ryan. And I have a funny story for that because Tom Ryan would bring his uh, former teammates. So after I transferred out, I told him he was upset. But then again, realistically, I, I didn't think I was going to make the lineup because he was bringing some studs in just to turn mm -hmm. the program around. Um, but he said, you know what? You come here anytime you want. So his room was open to me. And that's what I love about him. Um, and during the summer, he would have camp. I would help him out with the camp. No money. Uh, I didn't want any money just because what he did for me. And one year, I believe it was the summer of nine, after nine, the Olympics, 96 Olympics, he brings these two twin brothers in from Hofstra. <laughs> me being a little wise-ass, close to the weight, I, I was 158-pounder. I'm helping out. I didn't. I thought they would be like Tom Ryan would have a sense of humor. I'm not mentioning their names. I'm sure you can figure out who they are. <laughs> I know it's so, not the. I know it's not the. <laughs> you're not talking about the Iowa coaches. You're talking about the Steiners. No, I'm talking about the Iowa coaches. Talking about the Brains brothers. Oh wow. Okay. So, so they were there one uh, for Tom Ryan's camp. I think it was summer of '96 or '97. I was uh, training at Hofstra with them. I joked around. I go, oh, "You guys suck. You guys lost to an Iranian. You know how you guys suck." And I think that's when Terry must have lost, right? So, one of them so in 2000, Terry lost to Ali Razor Beer in the semis. 
Um, it, it was before that. It was okay. like 96, 97. I don't know. Okay. If, uh, they had loss or something was going on. And guess what they did? They said, oh, yeah, no problem. Let's drill. So the two brothers started drilling. And their drilling was me going live at a tournament. They beat the, <laughs> they beat the crap out of me. And then they did a round robin on me. And I'll never forget. I was like a little puppy looking at Tom Ryan to save me. And he was laughing. And I'll, after that, they would help me pick, they would pick me up and then they would double leg me down and beat the crap out of me. And that was, I mean, that was, I thought my mom's beatings were bad when I was young, but this was, this was at another level. And I just remember under the showers in the locker room from crying from fatigue. I had no idea what happened. And that was it. I never messed with them again until like recently I, I communicated with them. I'm still terrified of them. I, I've never told them the story though. I'm, I've interviewed Tom a few times and every time I get very, very nervous and probably, <laughs> probably for no reason, but it's just like, those guys mean business, you know? And, uh, whereas you go with Tom Ryan, you could, you could imagine going out in the town with Tom Ryan, you know, going out for yes. some drinks, having a blast, you know, just, just yucking it, you know, talking yep. to some girls and you don't imagine that with the brains brothers. It's all business. It is. Yeah. But I do see them smiling more as they're getting older, which kind of gives me hope that I could sit down with them and then discuss the story. But I was telling Royce Algiers about it. Um, and then Royce goes, Oh, you idiot. You don't do that with them. And I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so after, uh, after you went to Hunter college, how did, how'd that go? So I was at Hunter, um, during the summers when I was a hunter, I was able to collect some money from my financial aid, leftover money. And I would train in Iran during the summer. So I would go there. Oh, wow. fam- I, would ha- I would have family there and I would go train at a gym that was close to my uncle's house. And um, so that was an interesting experience. I would go for a month, come back. And believe it or not, it was a disadvantage for me for the NCAA because their style was so passive. And, you know, they're, they were so like technical, whereas the the American NCA style, folk style, is aggressive attack attack. I'll never forget my first day at practice in Iran. First of all, they they work out in a singlet or no shirt on, which is weird for me. I walked in like Tom Ryan with sweatpants, sweatshirt, and socks tucked in, and everyone thought I was an idiot. So then they make me wear a singlet, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not competing. I'm training. So then the coach kind of sits everyone against the wall. He talks about life, being respectful to your parents, God. You know, kind of gives them their uh, moral obligation and moral duty. And then they go out, they grab a partner, and uh, you start training with them. They do a lot of situations, technique. It was that interesting. But it's, it's uh, a lot of defense live, offense live, different sets. And then you do one match. So now they put me against this guy. Once again, I'm American, right? So they, they put me against their best guy. So guess what I'm doing? I'm, I'm being nasty. Division uh, one kind of. Attack, 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 clubbing, attack. Clubbing, yep. yep, I was clubbing and the guy gets mad. I'm like rubbing my head, you know, and then I get him in a front headlock and I'm choking the crap out of him in a front headlock because that's what we do. We lock it tight. I'm choking him, choking him. He's tapping to let go. I'm not letting go until he turns over. He gets up, he tries to attack me now. It was the most interesting. So I'm like 21, big. This guy's attacking me. I have no idea what's going on. The coach runs over, the practice stops. And the coach goes, no, no, stop. No, you got to kiss. I'm like, kiss? I'm not kissing him. So if you look at a lot of the U.S. and Iran matches, uh, Rahimi and uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, who was a lightweight from Iowa? I'm bad at names today. Who wrestled from Iowa on the national team during the World Cup 2014? He's at UNC right now. Oh, Tony Ramos. 
Tony Ramos. If you ever see that match, after Tony Ramos loses, Rahimi goes to kiss him, and Tony Ramos just like, yeah, dude, what are you doing? Wow. So I had to explain to the U.S. team uh, what goes on. So I was the same way. The whole gym is telling me to kiss him. I'm like, I'm not kissing him. So then finally we kiss, we make up, and then we continue practicing. But it was interesting to me. I would be so aggressive with them, and they would just wait for that moment of opportunity to hit me with a move. And yeah. it was so technical back then. I'm so glad you brought this up because one thing I realized about researching Iranian wrestling, when you look at Takti and these guys, the word chivalry comes up a lot. And I'm like, how the hell does that have any relevance? But in, in Iran, it's, it's a big part of it. And Takti is like the example for that. Exactly. So um, if you look at who the Iranians love on the American team, you'll see like they love Jordan Burroughs, right? First, because no Iranian has ever beat him. Second, it's his character, his attitude. So Iran with wrestling, it's you have a duty for the people. Your goal is to become the people's champ, right? It's not about medals. You know, Muhammad Ali, they worship Muhammad Ali because of his acts of kindness. They worship Ali? Yep. They think, you know, just he was grounded. Um, You know, he was a great athlete. At the same time, he helped the poor. You know, they say, if you know, help that neighbor. Um, if, that's a very important concept of wrestling. And when they're sitting down, when the coach is talking, that's, those are the lessons he reminds them. Be kind to your elders, your parents, help the needy. And that's what they're doing with them. So to become a people's champ in the Iran wrestling culture, you got to have your medals and you got to be loved by the people. Give back to society. Where does Yasdani fit to that? Yazdani does the same thing. I mean, but it's a newer generation, I think. I think a new generation. Um, but he's still, he's still, people love him. He does his acts of charity and kindness. But it, this was very prominent and it was very important. I believe in generations around my age and before, like my dad always talks about the great deeds the wrestlers used to do. I always hear stories about Takti helping the poor or giving his money to somebody else and that stuff, you know, just um, yeah. And that's why his name has lived on for so many years. And it's it's hard for people in the States to understand, unless you're really into the wrestling world, but Takti is is like a Michael Jordan to Iranians. I think he's even, yeah, he's, it's hard to explain, right? Because what they're taught in, in Iran is, which it, this is my opinion, right? Um, I hope I'm not offending anyone. In America, I wrestle for myself. It's mm-hmm. for my glory. Where in that culture, you're wrestling for your country, God and your country. Yeah. And that's what they constantly do. Every time you see an Iranian wrestler winning a medal, he goes, I'm dedicating this to my people. Right. So whereas here, it's, it's, hey, man, it's me. I worked so hard. I bled. I sweat. It's my glory. And right? actually, people say here, like, if you're wrestling for someone else, you're doing yourself a disservice. You know, it's like it kind exactly, of the opposite exactly. is it's preached. The- like if you're wrestling for your coach or your parents, uh, you're not going to make it. It's all for you, man. Yeah, exactly. You know what it is? Look at that basketball player, right? It's for them to make that money. Mm-hmm. Right. To do this. It's just a different culture. It's a different mindset. But I feel like that's going to slowly eventually change with the world changing, with the media changing, you know, social media is a lot. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's just the old, like, look at sumo, right? In Japan, I, I've heard, what was it? Somebody was telling me that's kind of dying out, that whole tradition of sumo wrestling you know mm. um but yeah with, with wrestling that's what it is i mean they they are i, I don't want to say worship 
Takti, like his on his anniversary of his death, I mean, his tomb, his grave, uh, they kind of idolized him uh, for his acts of kindness. I mean, he's he has medals, but most people talk about his acts of kindness. His yeah. chivalry. Yeah, that's and interesting. That's and yeah, it is. It is that chivalry keeps coming up. And you look, I can never pronounce the what's the word that starts with a Z? House of Strength. Zulhane. 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 Yeah. yeah, that's the ones with the little. Uh, I've gone to them. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That that dates back a long time ago. I mean, some people dated back to the Persian Empire where the soldiers used to train. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the same thing. Uh, it's got a little hint of Islam in it when you go to the uh, the ceremony. And then the workouts are still old school workouts. The way they stretch and warm up. It's pretty interesting. The push-ups they do on the... Uh, and also they respect the elder. Uh, the leader goes in the middle. They bow. They kiss the mat. Like the whole concept of kissing the mat, respecting the mat. You enter the field. And I used to do that because I'm like, I'm Iranian during my matches in the US. I would enter. And now when we go, the wrestling mat is so holy that everyone kisses it before they step on it. I love that. And also how the door is lower. So you have to bow, you have to lower yourself when you come in, right? Yes. You bow. Yes. There's a lot of that martial arts, like jujitsu, where like you line up beforehand, you bow, get yourself mentally centered. Whereas in wrestling in the States, you know, kids are, they're playing grab ass, they're tying their shoes, they're messing around. Like we could, we could bring a little bit of that to the American wrestling culture. The concept of respect, once again, right? It's, it's about respect. Um, so they teach that a lot, respect in the sport, right? You enter the wrestling mat because this mat is going to do a lot for you in life. And it has for me. I mean, you mm-hmm. take that mat uh, where I am right now. I, I owe it to the wrestling world and my friends, my whole crew, everyone I know is in the wrestling world. It's just a little knit family, competitive, uh, badass family that we're a part of. It's an honor too. Like you don't really realize it until you get to, to our age. And you, you know, a lot of people now know about wrestling because of the UFC and they're like, man, I wish I would have wrestled. And it's like, you kind of feel bad for them because, you know, jujitsu, you can learn it and, you know, four to five years and become not proficient, proficient, but pretty good. But man, like wrestling, I don't know why it takes so long, but, and there's just so many lessons that it takes 20 years to get them. You know, you can't get it quick. Exactly. I mean, like you said, jujitsu, same thing. Um, but I mean, I have, I respect for all athletes. It takes a lot to be mm-hmm. an athlete, but I think to become a wrestler, you have to sacrifice a lot. Um, you got to sacrifice a lot. It, the sport breaks you down and rebuilds you. Absolutely. Mentally, physically, and emotionally, I think. I mean, and uh, I love how it's, you know, it, it really teaches you, even if you do everything right, right sleep, right diet, right workouts, you could still have your heart ripped out. And that's a lesson that a lot of people don't realize until you go through wrestling. I agree. Um, look at me. Every, anyone that talks to me, I don't have a, a state title. I'm not even a state place winner. I never qualified for the dance, as we used to say, for the NCAA tournament, not division one or three. Mm-hmm. Right. I tried out for the little U.S. cycle for the team and I got a reality check very quick and I decided to go after my education and give back in other ways. All right. So two things I want to ask you before we let you go is, you know, one, I'm in uh, software sales. I love hearing about business and, and Wall Street. Tell me about kind of your start on Wall Street and what's allowed and what's allowed you to uh, to advance there. So 
let's go back to 1999. I graduated from Hunter College. Now, I have a psychology degree, uh, major in psychology, minor in communication and mathematics. My parents brought us to become doctors. So now they come to my graduation in Central Park in Manhattan. My dad's asking me, so where are you going to medical school? Hey, dad. So I was like, hey, dad, you know what? I don't like medical school. I never liked it. I wanted to make the Olympics. That didn't work out. Not even close. So my parents, my mom's like, what? We, we sacrificed our life. We brought you to America to be successful. To foreign parents, being a doctor in America means success. Doctor, lawyer, um, that's it. Nothing else. <laughs> to this day, my mom brings it up. You, funny thing is, to this day, when I argue with my mom, she goes, I sacrificed my life with her accent. And you didn't become a doctor. I'm like, mom, I'm, look where I am. I'm doing kind of okay. But no, so um, now with a psychology major, I'm like, what am I going to do with life? I always wanted to be in business. I mean, I wanted to be something my parents were never. I wanted to be that man with a suit. But I didn't have any background in business, right? So I'm like, what am I going to do? So I... Started looking for jobs. Now, I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so I couldn't get into an analyst program. I didn't have any contacts. I mean, during the summer, I didn't do any internships. I worked at a bagel store, the jewelry store, I busboy restaurant to make ends meet. And I couldn't really work too much, right? I was in college. Um, so I just started interviewing. Uh, at the time, a bunch of all my wrestling buddies had gone to, uh, this is 1999, work at a telecom company. Uh, my wrestling teammates, and they were... You know, they had that aggressive sales uh, kind of mm -hmm. uh, attitude and they were, do, they were crushing it. And now it's right before the telecom, you know, the, the tech boom, yep. telecom companies were crushing it. So I go in there. I lasted three months. I just couldn't go door to door trying to convince people to change their phone companies. And I said, this is not me. I know you guys are crushing it, making a lot of money and partying in the hands. I just can't do it. It's not my character. From there, I posted my resume and I just, I would send a hundred emails uh, a day with my resume. Finally, I get lucky. Payne Weber, um, at the time, big financial company. I don't know if you're familiar with it. They were a big company. They asked me, the HR goes, you know what? We'd like to interview you. They were about to make an offer to somebody else. And they just wanted to make sure, you know, test everyone out with different. So I go in and obviously I crush it. The HR manager loved me. She loved me. Um, I still remember I, I didn't have money for a suit back. I wasn't that rich. So I ended up buying there was a special at some store that had buy a suit, you get a shirt and a tie free. And then the suit was like a weird brown color, shiny. I'm sure it was for a club. So I go in an interview with that instead of the traditional Wall Street pinstripe suit. Um, so I go in, my hair all gelled up. I had no idea. My gold chain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was rather, it was funny. So I passed that round and then she goes, um, would you be interested in meeting this manager? I meet the next round. They're about to make an offer. And I tell them, listen, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about finance, equity, nothing. But I guarantee you guys that I will outwork everyone. And I will be on my feet in this field. Just take a chance with me. And they did. So I, they took a chance with me. They hired me. The lowest, lowest point. I don't know anything. So I had to work. So I get in and I just crush it. I got that wrestling mentality. I'm working. I don't even know what I'm doing. But I knew I had to complete these tasks. And eventually... Um, my supervisor at the time started teaching me and coaching me and teaching me and coaching me. And then I started learning, took my series seven test, aced it, um, which I was proud of myself. And then I started, I was like, no, let me go get my MBA. At the time I was living at my parents' house, LIU was right there. So I ended up uh, doing my MBA. Uh, so I finished my MBA. I'm like, you know what? I like this. And then from there, 
uh, I transitioned over from uh, UBS to Morgan Stanley and then came over to the hedge fund world in compliance. And I totally fell into it. I mean, I always wanted to be a trader. I mean, the traders are all former athletes. I mean, every trader you meet, it's a former division one lacrosse player, wrestler. And I get on the compliance side, you know, the, the cops of the firm that were, uh, everyone hates. Um, so <laughs> I, I got into the compliance side. And then next thing I know, I'm working at uh, Hedge Fund through an old boss that I knew. And then the rest has been his history. It's been great. And I just have been able to just work, meet great, wonderful people. Um, and I've been sitting on the trading desk uh, all my career dealing with the guys. And I, I have a way of connecting with them through working out on sports, which has helped me a lot in my career. I mean, mm -hmm. shooting the shit. My head trader here is into jujitsu. Guess what? He needs help take food takedowns. We have a wrestling mat upstairs, small wrestling mat. And whenever he has time, I teach him. Um, he goes, I don't get it. I always lose to wrestlers. And I told him, you will always lose to wrestlers. You know, it's kind of hard. And so we work on that. And so that has been a blessing. Um, been able to use that whole wrestling history again, right? Yeah. To... And just facing obstacles and just learning and learning and learning. And I guess I, I, you could say I am successful. Um, but from that, I always told myself, I said, one day when I'm on my feet, I will definitely give back because I tasted poverty in America. And I, and I, I was lucky enough to, uh, I mean, once again, I had no mentorship. My parents were never there. I, I've never had, uh, a mentor to kind of show me the way, just always me messing up and learning from it and moving forward. Uh, but I've been blessed uh, in the sport of wrestling. I met Mike Novogratz, like uh, Andy Both, these great leaders uh, in the financial world and also in the wrestling world. So I've been able to look up to them as mentorships in the, in the uh, financial world. Like Andy Both is a great, great, great mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm lucky enough to be on the board of uh, Titan Mercury with them. Uh, oh, you are? Wow. So, yep. So uh, with that, once I got a job, I was able to now join the New York Athletic Club. Uh, I was always one of those kids that kind of went through the back entrance and we had open mats. And it was always a dream when I looked at that building to be a member. And I was able to become a member back in 2007. Uh, I was a member up to last year during COVID. And I kind of walked away because they were closed. So I met great wrestlers there. I mean, uh, so... All the heroes of my childhood uh, would come to that. You know, you had Sonny Green, all that ran that program. And then from there, Bruce Baumgartner and all these people that were affiliated with that club. And then I got on the wrestling scene uh, with USA Wrestling. I was honored to become the team leader for the 2017 World Cup in Iran. So that was, that was a huge, huge, huge event for me. And that I, at that point, I realized how big the sport is. I mean, a lot of people don't see how big the sport is and what it does. But when there was a travel ban, right? So and I'll, go, I'll, I'll go backwards to the 2013 efforts. So, but during the travel ban in 2016, the World Cup was in Iran. Uh, President Trump comes out and says, no, uh, nobody from these countries could enter uh, the US. Iran retaliates and goes, nope. And then guess what? We had a travel plan for 10 days for the World Cup in the city of Kermanshah, which is close to the border of Iran, Iraq. And I was a team leader. Uh, USA had, uh, Wrestling had given me the privilege of becoming the team leader for that event. Guess what? At that point, Rich Bender is saying, hey, I don't think this is right. The athletes, parents were concerned. 
now I had my ties in Iran with the wrestling world. Uh, the head of the federation was Rasul Khadam. Legend. Yep. And I had the honor of working with him for this past uh, six years, seven years. Uh, I was his uh, consultant here for the U.S. wrestling. So I was a liaison between the two federations. And uh, we got so close. I mean, the cooperation we had all the way up to 2019 or 18, it was unbelievable. It was friendly. We all worked. I mean, we got Ivana uh, nominated to go into uh, UWW. They hadn't had somebody in 20 years. I helped with that whole campaign. So during Kirman Shah, Rich Bennett goes, we got to cancel. And I told him, Rasul Khadam said, please give us 72 hours. 72 hours, Iran announces, we will welcome the Americans. So now the State Department contacts me and goes, if anything happens, we can't take care of you because you're entering with your Iranian passport. Because since I was born there, I can't enter with a US passport. But the Americans, that would be a diplomatic issue. I would be screwed. So now I'm like, oh man, this sucks. <laughs> What's going on? So then I call Iran and they're like, Rasul Khadam goes, don't worry about it. If anything happens, you have your Iranian passport. <laughs> so I come back. I reassured also. Tom Ryan calls me. There were a bunch of guys from Ohio State that, was on the, that were on the national team. And it goes, their parents are concerned. I spoke to their parents. I said, listen, I'm going to be there and I will do all my best. I said, you'd be surprised um, if you put the politics on the new media side. The people there love wrestling. They worship these wrestlers and they're very hospitable. Yeah. Once... Once we get there, I think everyone was like, wow. We, are, we go to Kermanshah. They get a charter plane with us and the Iranian team just to make it symbolic. And you should have, Really? Yep. We both take one chartered plane from Tehran to the city of Kermanshah, which was, I think, a 12-hour flight or an hour and a half. And the whole team was there. So now you got, Tay- we got Taylor, you got Yazdani, you got Jordan Burroughs. We're all on the same plane just for us. Oh, with my Heavy Lord. security. It was very heavy security because I, I believe ISIS was still active in Iraq and we were very close to the border of uh, Iraq. Right. So we, Iran did everything. And I heard later afterwards, after the security detail that they had pretty much the military and everything by our hotel. They wouldn't even let me leave the hotel. It was tight. Wow. And then the moment that it was amazing was in the moment I walked in the stadium. The stadium had, I think, 2,500 seats. 3,000 seats, I could swear there was 5,000 people hanging from the ceiling, chanting USA. And this was never, uh, it was never showed on the Iranian national TV, the state media, but I have clips of it, chanting wow. USA, USA, yeah. USA? It was, yep, it was insane. And then With when those Jordan crazy Burles, horns? Yes, the whole place was going insane. And I'll never forget, um, one of the US team members runs to the back because I was with the team doing translations. It's like, Momo. They're holding your picture in the stands. So I'm like, what? Who, who am I? I walk out and people are holding my picture. And I'm like, wow. But then, and another time was we, we couldn't get in the bus into the stadium because the people had barricaded because of Jordan. I mean, Jordan Burroughs. I always tell them, I'm like, you always cause problems because everyone loves you. And so we couldn't go in and it was a security issue, right? Because the bus was now stuck with 200 people trying to see Jordan. Oh my God. And I'll never forget the security uh, that was with us uh, from Iran, told the bus driver, no, no, run them, run them over. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So what I did was I, I told the bus driver, I'm like, hold on. I took Jordan Burroughs to the end of the bus and I told him to go by the window, hang out. So the whole crowd ran to the back and we were able to go in. And we're and talking we make- thousands of people, right? That's how much they love JB over there. Yep. They love him. They, I mean, every time I, 
I went, I did a live uh, uh, interview with them during COVID and it just went nuts. I mean, they love him so much. Once again, it's because they consider him the people's champ, his character. And I'll never forget when he came on the mat in, during the World Cup, um, he wasn't, I guess he was in the zone and he wasn't waving back at people. And I remember after his match, I pulled him aside. I said, hey, just so you know, all these people are here for you. So when you're out there, just wave at them. They expect that. And then his second match, he kind of does this whole thing and the whole place just goes insane. And then you, then you have Taylor. Um, I was going to say, that's it, oh, crazy match. Go ahead, yep. go ahead. Keep going. And then you have, now that match is going on, right? And then you have Taylor pinning Yazdani. Out of nowhere, Taylor comes out and pays, pins Yazani, and, and it, that was it. And I remember after that match, we get on the plane, we come back to Tehran to catch our flight to Frankfurt. Taylor's getting death threats, and all these people are going, him, his wife, he was terrified. And I said, no, 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 this is just emotions. I talked to a security guard that was with us. And, and then just so you know, whenever I comment on one of Taylor's uh, – posts i know what you're gonna say yeah yes i get similar stuff sent to me yeah yeah i will uh i've had david on a couple of times he's one of my all-time favorites and that match is so symbolic for him because you know he had struggled to adapt to the new weight class because he was down at 163 it's him dakin jb it's just a, it's a bloodbath he moves up and he's almost quits because he can't handle the 20 extra pounds and that's his first big win that really put him on the next phase of his career that we're still seeing and begins that rivalry. And then, you know, they meet in the world's first round. It's a barn burner, uh, man, that I get chills talking about those two matches because that is one where, you know, David Taylor is a hero to so many and including me and to see him turn the tide against the Olympic champ in Iran. Oh my God. Crazy. Uh I'm a big fan of David Taylor. I love his character. I, I'm all about people's character. And I like the way he carries himself. He's, he's polite. He's confident. He's good. He's just a good human being. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. And the thing is, every time he makes a post that I'm training and that title is mine, that is not taken well with Iran because they think that he's kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're not used to this hype on social media. It's not part of our culture. Mm -hmm. They find it disrespectful. So I try to always explain. And that's why every time David posts it, uh, something on Instagram and says, eyeing that 2022 world champion gold medal, the Iranian side goes insane. Oh, David Taylor's talking shit. You know, they take it the wrong way. It's mm -hmm. some other culture. So I've told David, I said, don't take it too hard. It's just, it's not, they're not used to it. You can't make a David Taylor post on Instagram without seeing 2000 Iranian flags in the comments. Just, just like crazy. I can't. I can't even post his picture. <laughs> I no, I, 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 I'm serious. I, I can't know. even post David Taylor, even if for his birthday. You should see, I have to shut my comments down. <laughs> you, they call me a traitor. They call me a sellout. Which side are you? And I'm like, well, dude. The best, part of, the best part about it is that if JB wouldn't have lost in 2016, he would have wrestled Yazdani in the finals. And then we would have got... everybody wanted. I mean, Iran tried so hard to make that match happen. Even for Beat the Streets, uh, I, I was on the board for years for New York. I was the one that brought Beat the Streets to New York um, in Times Square. Uh, mm -hmm. Mike Novogatz, that was one of his things. He wanted Yazdani and, Taylor, and uh, Jordan. And they would never do that to them. If Yazdani loses on American soil, it's no good to an American. 
True. Wow. So you've done so many cool things and, you know, just with bridging the gap and, you know, it's just a travesty what happened this past year with the bout at the ballpark. And, you know, we don't even need to get into all that, but I know you were trying to make it happen. It didn't happen. I want to talk a little bit about Afghanistan though. What's going on there and how'd you get involved with this situation? So I've been doing charity work, I guess, unofficially since college, right? So every time I would go back, I would collect all my teammates' wrestling shoes, the used ones, and I would go to Iran. And wrestling's always in the in the weaker neighborhoods in Iran. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not like here where it's tied to colleges and the high schools. Sports in Iran are clubs. Mm-hmm. So, and then a lot of these clubs are in downtown poor areas. So I would go there and just give shoes out. So I, I was doing that for a year since 1998. So every time I would, season would finish in college, I would grab the shoes, gear, take it and get handed out. So I was doing that for a while, 2013. Um, it was Save the Wrestling, uh, Mike Novogratz and a bunch of others got together. They had that tournament on the rail. Rasul Khadem had become a team uh, coach. We reconnected and then, from there, I got involved heavily again in the wrestling world. Before that, I was involved with the New York Athletic Club. I was, you know, it wasn't on the global scene as much. Like they had an international tournament. I even competed at that tournament. And Pendleton, I think his name is, uh, mm-hmm. he kind of made me realize quickly that this is not the scene for me uh, in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Pendleton. One of the yes, Chris Pendleton. Oh, yes. my God. Um, so, yeah, I, as you see, there's a trend here that I always get these number one seats. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> make me uh, reassure my decision to go after work and making money and helping. So uh, I was involved with that. And from there, uh, I started helping Iran. Once again, I, 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 helping Iran is funny because of sanctions. So you got to be very careful with money and who you take money from. So I had money in Iran a little bit. So I used that to help around. Next thing I know, a friend goes, there's a bombing at a wrestling uh, club in Afghanistan in Kabul, uh, Maywand Wrestling Club. It's in the New York Times, 30 kids were killed. I get in touch with the writer and the next thing I know the writer connects me to one of the people in the club. He speaks English. I connect, I said, what happened? What's the damage? They tell me 30 kids died. I'm like, okay, I gotta do something. I said, you know what? I gotta do something. Set up a GoFundMe. We collected money from the Americans. And to me, it was very important to let them know that the Americans, the American, wrestling world uh, was there because we're always portrayed as the bad people perhaps by uh their uh some of their leaders so we collected money with the help of the americans and then we rebuilt that gym we rebuilt it better we put two uh, security levels uh we with new mats and uh so we rebuilt it they had a grand opening uh, they invited me to go there but i was told not to by uh my friend that's in the U.S. government, he said, do not go there. Um, ISIS would love to get their hands on you now. Uh, it's funny because uh, I, was, I was on their list for a while because of the stuff I was doing. Because after that gym, I helped refurbish two other gyms in Kabul and get all those kids, I mean, the kids that were from war and torn country orphans off the streets and into this wrestling. So I figured if these kids are off the streets, these terrorist leaders can't come and recruit these kids. You know? mm-hmm. And then this way, our military, our personnel is safe there. These kids don't get brainwashed instead of them going to a madrasa learning uh, fanatic uh, ideology, the coach could teach them. So that's, that's what I did with the money I collected. I was able to fix that gym that was blown up and then two other gyms. Um, And then 
we bought mats from the region. So I also employed people there. So therefore we kind of put food on their table. And once again, they, I said, make sure you guys know, this is the American people showing you, you know, they're not bad. Who cares about the politics and the leaders and whatever their intentions or agenda is. Unfortunately, when the Taliban came, that kind of backfired on them because they, they were looked at as people that were cooperating with the Americans and they were reaching out to me to help. And there was nothing I could do. I reached out to UW. So that club, who happens to be Shiite minorities, were now in trouble, first for being the Shiite minority and cooperating with the Americans back in 2017, rebuilding that gym. Wow. So that's, that's what I did with them. Um, and then from there, I started helping um, in Iran with gyms out of my own money. Uh, rebuilding gyms, providing, you know, the more people we get off the streets, especially the kids and show them that the West, the people are kind of caring and they, they, they are, they care about your being this way. I think we could change uh, the future. So that's, has, that's been my mission Um, during, uh, and then once again, Rasul Khadem was very supportive of me when I was on the ground there, but he's no longer the head. Dabir came in and since I was with Rasul, Dabir is not utilizing me anymore. I don't know what's going on between them. Ugh, so, so frustrating. That's why I, I, that, he was like one of my I heroes haven't... when he wrestled Terry Branson. Now I realize that I'm going to yeah. say it. I, I've heard nothing but actually really bad things about this guy. I mean, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah that's a, I mean, that's what that's what that's what the story is. I mean, I haven't been in the wrestling scene as much anymore because of that, because of my uh, work relationship with Rasul. And during the whole Texas thing, he didn't want me involved, and that's why I was not involved. The U.S. arresting uh, respected his wishes. But then when I found out about it, I did inform them that there's no way he's coming um, because of my resources on the ground in Iran. He had no intentions of coming, and that's what happened. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's amazing so, that I, you're out there <clears throat> doing this kind of stuff, and I didn't even know they had wrestling in Afghanistan, to be totally honest with you. Until I Yes, they, they have a term for it. It's like Pahlavani, chivalry style of wrestling. That's what they call it. Same concept, right? It all used to be the former Persian Empire. So they all still have that. Um, they're not as good because it's, a, it's been a, war, a war-torn country. So, I mean, there's a lot of potential there, in my opinion. But it just I just don't know if there's going to be a solution for the future. I feel bad. Um, now you got a lot of uh, the Afghan refugees out came across and that's what I've been doing for the past two years during COVID my company allowed me to work remote so I've been there on the ground by the border of Afghanistan uh, building little schools for girls uh, young girls there um, so there's a practice there young brides right so what they do is they uh, a lot of times they sell their young daughters to men my age from the city the men supports the little girl till she uh, hurts puberty and he takes it. So now what we're doing with the help of Rasul Kadem, Kumail Ghassan, they're all part of a local uh, charity. We're building schools. I have built uh, three schools so far, two in my two boys' sons' names. Um, so now these kids will get educated. We provide them tablets during COVID. So now the girls get education. At the same time, the charity is teaching them how to weave rugs or make uh, crafts. So now if a man comes to the family and goes, I'll give you $8 a month, $8 a month for your daughter, the family could say, no, she's bringing in $12 a month from the stuff. So they see a war. It's crazy. I mean, being out there. So that's what I've been doing for the past two years during COVID. Uh, I've been lucky enough that my firm allowed me to do this. So a lot of times I'm off the grid. I'm right. I got to show you. Sometimes I go to say, to find myself, I'm right about 80 kilometers from the border of uh, Afghanistan or 
wow. uh, Pakistan. So that's where I've been doing those regions. They're these little nomadic villages. They don't even have a birth certificate. Nobody knows about them. No government cares about them. That's crazy, man. First of all, thank you so much for doing that. I, I can't even imagine how much that changes your perspective when you come back to, to Manhattan. And so a couple of things. One is, is it so all, all as I'm hearing this, all I all I'm thinking is I want to go over there with you. Is it safe for an American to go to Iran right now? Or is that more uh, more media nonsense it, that it's not? It is safer now compared to the previous administration. But if I were you, I, I mean, for the things I do, I don't recommend it. Um, mm-hmm. But for a wrestling tournament, yes, you come in. Um, right now, tourism is kind of slowing around because of the past administration and what's going on there. Um, but the people are very hospitable. I mean, I've, I've, I took Andy Barth there with Titan Mercury, and he loved it. Um, it's a great food. People are very kind and generous. So to answer your question, yes, it is safe from that perspective. Um, as long as you're not in politics, you haven't traveled to Israel, those are the things that the government there are sensitive towards. Mm-hmm. But if but, I landed at the airport, would they like seize me or would they let me go, you think? You would, I think they would be suspicious of what, what you're doing there. What's your purpose there? Yeah. Before, Because you would have to get your paperwork done. Um, first of all, I don't think you can even board a plane because they ask, uh, final destination, Iran, okay, you have a passport, you have a visa. Got so you would have to get your it. visa. I, mean, I know they have a they have an interest section in Washington D.C. in the Pakistani uh, embassy. That's where they would issue a visa, and that's what we do for the U.S. team every time they're going to go. Wow, that's so fascinating, and just it just you it makes you want to get over there and help and get boots on the ground, even if it's not as much wrestling related as it is these schools, you know. And my last question for you is, how can people donate to your to your cause? Well, I my charity is Humanities. It's a non for profit. But I just want everyone to know that money cannot be used in, in sanctioned countries. So ah. whatever I do in Iran is out of my own pocket. But the money for my charity, I use it for other, uh, if there's an, another cause. I'm, I'm really into empowering females. So I always uh, collect money for that or gear or, um, you know, if there's a cause I truly believe in. Um, but everything else I do in Iran specifically, uh, it's out of my own personal money. Um, so it's not... Um, there's no issues with the sanction and I don't want anyone to get in trouble, but mm-hmm. my charity is humanities.org. I have a website. Um, I help beat the streets, in New York. I help a variety of uh, local uh, needs as well. I had a lot of gear. I've been lucky enough to get gear from Shane, uh, Nike, uh, ASICS has given me gear. Adidas also uh, has given me gear gear. So I have all this gear and whenever there's a need or if there's a high school in Harlem that needs uh, shoes for the kids i will definitely do it because if i could change the life of one kid i think i've done a great job just one kid and you you it's it's so true because you think about one kid who you know goes and you know gets a good job because of wrestling and he's a worker then he has you know it's just it's a spiral effect and, and we've all seen that yeah i always say i said hey because they go I'm, I'll, I'll pay you back i'll get you back i said no no i said pay it forward i said whenever you are in a position to give back. And it doesn't always have to be money. I mean, everyone says, I don't have money to give you. You know what? I think time is worth more than money. If you could devote your time and coach, if you're a wrestler, you might not be financially uh, strong to donate a lot of money. It's easy to write a check, right? If you have money, you could just write a check. But if you take an hour and maybe do some educational uh, tutoring or, you know, give one of these kids, uh, beat the sweet kids or Give them an opportunity to internship at your firm. You know, I think those also make a big difference. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's been an honor to have you on. I'm glad we could finally get this scheduled. I, I just have so many ideas of, of like, for example, like getting, I don't know if Rasul would do a, an interview. Uh, that would be amazing to get him on a zoom. And I, I, I imagine you speak fluent Farsi, so you could be our, you could be our translator. I do. Be- yes. It, it's really hard to get them to do because it's American. And once again, they, yeah, their mentality and their view is very different. Um, for Rasul, you know, I'm sure. What if the government says, "Who's this guy?" So they always are very hesitant in interviewing. If you notice with uh, Western media, mm. you don't see Rasul at all. I don't think I've ever seen him on Western media interviewing. No. Um, even Yazdani is hesitant to do an interview. Um, so that's the restriction with that. I mean, I would love for Rasul. I'm sure he's got a lot of stories, but I oh my don't think they would do it. Yeah, I know. It's it's. I've had a. Uh... The, the Iranians I have who I'm friends with who live in Belgium, I had them type up a message in Farsi because like Google Translator, you know, it's never going to be the same. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I need I need an authentic message in Farsi to send uh, Yazdani. And I've, I've sent it to him you know, several times on Instagram. Yeah, you know, I don't expect anything, but I'm just like to have an interview with one of those guys would be unbelievable. And even like um, uh, I Mohammed, could get you people that are in this. Uh, I could get you people that are in the States. I know. Uh, the former national coach for the junior team is here now living in Mississippi, Mustafa. Excellent. That would work. So yeah. Anything. Yeah. He's, he's coaching in Mississippi, Mississippi, um, like one of the only states just, that doesn't have wrestling. They say they just it, started it. They just sanctioned it. So he's helping it grow. It's his first year there. He's working with a gentleman, Brian Fox, who's kind of yes. leading the whole process. He's been on the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Mustafa is now working with them. I connected them. He lives there and he works with them. And he's a gold mine of uh, talent there. And I'm sure oh uh, Mississippi, there's a bright future for Mississippi in freestyle. Think about all those football studs down there. Like they yes. have the athletes, you know, like put them on the mat and they would do just fine. Wow. Is, uh, is it true that Mahavid defected in the, in the, in 72? He didn't defect. Uh, he lives here. I think he he's lives in Virginia. Here. I've seen him multiple times in, um, the New York Athletic Club. He's friends with my coach there, Hamid Kamashah, who uh, is a part of the New York Athletic Club. And he does come up uh, once in a while, but I think he's getting fragile and old now. So he's a but legend. He does, he does. Yes, yes. He lives in Virginia, I think, or that area. Gable told me that that was his biggest threat going into 72. And then when they got to 72, he didn't wrestle at the Olympics. He left before that. And I'm like, I can't for the life of me figure out why, because nothing really happened until 79. You get to Munich in 72. I don't know what's going on. I'm sure there's a story behind it, but yeah, Gable's the one actually told me that. And he's like, that was my biggest, biggest competition besides uh, us, us really of the Russian or the Soviet back then. But yeah, what, a, I mean, that guy's a legend in his own right. Mahavid. Habibi and Mohamed are, yeah, the two legends that are still alive um, from that Habibi's era. still alive. Yes. He's very wow. old. Yep. That is because that was 1960 at Rome when Doug Bluebaugh and him wrestled. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. So those are the, I think, the only remaining from Takti's generation or maybe the younger of Takti's wow. generation. Amazing. Well, I could talk about this stuff all day with you. I'm sure you have a busy, very busy schedule. I just want to thank you for the time. And it's been an honor to chat with you. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. And that honor has been mine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life with Mo Tavakolian. This episode was presented by Spartan Combat. Register now for the Hofstra Summer Heat Wrestling Tournament going down Sunday, July 24th at SpartanCombat.com. To see video clips from this interview, go to Instagram at Wrestling Changed My Life.